Today on Phone Calls with Clever People, we're having a conversation on action, more specifically turning leadership theory into action. My guest is author and corporate trainer, Mark Graney, and he recently told me that while leadership theory is great and important, what matters most is that we know how to put it into practice. Early in the year when New Zealand went into lockdown, Mark was presented with the opportunity to go to sea for six weeks with one of his clients, and he had to live by those words as he traded what he says is gold status for no status. Today, we're exploring what six weeks at sea taught him about leadership on the ground. Hi everyone and welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. My name's Shane Hatton. I'm a speaker, author and mentor from Melbourne, Australia and I'm passionate about all things leadership and communication. I realized recently that I know some really clever people in my network and I thought it would be a fun idea to be able to take some of their cleverness and share it with the rest of the world. Now through the wonders of technology, I'm broadcasting my phone calls with clever people just for you. And really the premise is quite simple. I just want to be able to ask great questions of talented people to help us all become more effective leaders. Joining me on the phone is Mark Graney. Mark is a highly regarded corporate trainer and author and is an expert at creating environments where learning sticks. Over more than a decade as an independent trainer, Mark and his company have worked at all levels across corporate New Zealand to transform the way that people lead. His book, Leading People, is full of leadership skills for practical people, and I'm so excited to have him on the phone. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Shane. Really great to be here. You and I have been having a bit of a chat about some of the the last three months um, over there in New Zealand and what you've been up to, and I can't wait to share some of your story, but one of the things that I always like to do when we kick off the podcast is to start with some fast facts. And so just three quick questions. Um, where were you born? What was your first job? And what do you do with yourself now? So where was I born? I was born in a place called Hawke's Bay, which is a kind of a, was a farming agricultural type area on the east coast of New Zealand, um, famous really now for a lot of great wines that they produce there. Um, but it's pretty, it's it's kind of a provincial town in New Zealand, like a regional town, I guess you might call it, in, in Australia. Um, but yeah, so grew up, and my first actual job I had was a milk, milk boy, um, <laughs> delivering um, bottles off the back of a milk truck. Uh, I remember we had to lift the heavy trolley off the back of the truck and I, I wasn't strong enough so I'd scrape my shins as I put it down onto the ground with the skids <laughs> that was would stop you and but it got me really fit so I was quite into my running early on as a kid um, but my actual first proper job was uh, being a school teacher for eight and nine year old children so I trained as, as a um, um, primary school teacher and taught sort of up to 11 or 12 in my time doing teaching all right yeah and then what, what are you doing with yourself yeah. now? Tell us a little bit about you and your practice. Okay. So what I do now is probably for the last 11 years, I've run um, a, 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 a practice in the sense of where it was called New Zealand Facilitators. So I had a team of people helping me deliver training and organizations in New Zealand and some pretty sort of stable environments in New Zealand with the New Zealand Police uh, Fletcher Building, which is a massive building company in New Zealand, and various other organisations doing bits and bobs. But through COVID-19, it's really helped me transform it into um, working under my own name more. Mm. So uh, a lot of work dropped away, 
um, and under lockdown, sort of things changed quite a bit. So I'm just really focusing on delivering my stuff now and getting really, really practical with what I do with the people I work with. Yeah, and I love this. You've got this tagline in, that you often talk about in your practice, which is um, leadership skills for practical people. Uh, what's th- what's that all yep. about? So when I um, I wrote a book a year ago called Leading People, and I wanted to throw a bit of a rock because I think leadership is quite a it's a it's a great word. We see lots of books about it in bookstores and online, but a lot of it's all around the theory. And we often vault leadership as it's the sexy thing, it's the high ranking thing, it's the it's the inspirational part that we want to get to. Mm. But often, sometimes some of that stuff just sits in the exec team or with general managers. But I wanted to do a practical book for managers, so the people who are in that first-line management position who rise up off the floor or out of the team and become the person that leads the team, mm-hmm. whether they're called a team leader, a supervisor, a leading hand, or a manager. So I wanted to say, hey, leadership's great, but I want to I want to talk about this book in terms of some basic tools for practical managers who are doing the job still and leading people doing the job. So that's so kind of where the, the idea for the book came from. Yeah, well, it, well, it's, look, it's starting to have some really good traction, and I just really soft launched it. But um, it, the, that was last August, and it was more a thing about sort of getting it done. But now I'm loving what I'm doing with it, and I'm using it in a lot of my courses that I run, mm. and um, advertising it online, and talking about the tools in it. And it's it's really really been quite a quite a big thing, and I've I've loved it, loved doing it. I, I remember um, maybe about six months ago, I wrote a white paper, which was on the journey from team member to people leader. And I kind of described it a bit like you could be a passenger on a plane and you could be gold class in your flight status and you could fly every yeah. week, you could fly over the, over the world, but it's very different when you're thrust behind the controls of a plane and asked to fly the plane. And that transition is complex and it's complicated, but um, there are some skills that if you've got in your toolbox can actually help make that transition a lot less complex and a lot less complex, right? Oh, absolutely. And often we talk about it here in New Zealand is you'll become um, you'll become top in your field, whatever the technical skill is for mm. and part of the team. So you might be the top sales manager or the, the best engineer or the, the most technical person on the floor. And then suddenly they go, right, the next role for you is as a team leader or a manager. And it's actually now 50 or 60% about leading the people, not necessarily doing the technical skill that you got there for in the first place. That's so true. So that's... That, yeah, and it doesn't matter what the organisation is. So uh, a couple of years ago, after working with those the, the previous companies I mentioned, I'd also worked with a fishing company. I'd worked with um, uh, like a fast food franchises. And then I found myself working with Rocket Lab, who are pretty famous here in New Zealand, but they send up rockets um, for clients all over the world, including the US government um, and some military organizations and for NASA. They launch satellites and they actually launch them from the place that I'm from. So I'm incredibly proud of Hawke's Bay, a little settlement on a peninsula where they can easily launch things like rockets. And so we've actually got our own rocket base here in New Zealand, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I think they've done 12 launches over the last 18 months. Um, the, the rockets themselves are only 17 metres tall, but they launch these sort of mini satellites, get them up to orbit, drop their payload, and then come come back to Earth. And um, amazing business. Um, and why why I mention them is because even these guys who are actually rocket scientists, they still need <laughs> the practical leadership skills. Yeah. They actually, when they were running teams, and I had a, a, a fantastic lady who was originally from Israel, amazing rocket scientist, but she had a team of 25, and she just was swamped with what to do with them and how to how to lead her team. Hmm. So I um, yeah, so that, I love that, that leadership isn't rocket it. science. 
and it's it literally rocket it's and not rocket science. It. No, it's not. But <laughs> it's we joke about it being different. rocket science. We joke about it being really hard. And, uh, sorry, we joke about leadership isn't rocket science, but actually this was for rocket scientists. <laughs> and so I was really, and I was in awe of these people when I delivered the workshop to them, and then subsequently I've changed changed their next level down. But they were just so amazing in their technical skills, but they needed the same leadership techniques and tools that uh, the that the, the fruit and veggie people needed, that the fast food people needed, mm. that the, the construction workers needed. They were no different because all the same stories and analogies and problems were coming up. Yeah. And I love that you've, yeah. you've touched on this because this is the conversation we need to have. And I think you've touched on a whole bunch of people that you've done work with in, in developing some of these practical leadership skills, right? And obviously, you and I'm, I'm a trainer as well, and we, we stand in front of the room yeah. and we talk about frameworks and models and we try and show people things that would... Um, you know, I guess put something in their toolbox to help them to get out and lead. But at the end of the day, the one thing that you and I can't do is to grab those people by their hand and go out on the floor with them and lead in their role with them or be with them. So we kind of bring them into a room, we have conversations, then we send them out and they have to go and put it into practice, right? Now, for you, that story looks a little bit different because at the start of lockdown in New Zealand, um, do you want to share with people the decision that you made and what on earth went through your head when you made that decision? Oh, look, okay. Um, I'm still processing it now, but I think <laughs> I had been in lockdown about eight days. We have three lovely teenage daughters at home, and my wife is doing an amazing job of working with them. And I was down in my office doing Zoom calls and setting up things for clients and what, and, and teaching them how to go online. And then one by one, um, work that we had got postponed. And so... When my sort of fishing client, who was my last major client to postpone work, a company called Sanford here in New Zealand, they do a lot of deep sea fishing and they also have mussels and salmon. Um, they rang me and said, hey, look, everything's going to be pushed out till September, October. Um, and then in the same breath, they were saying that we're really struggling to find crew for our deep water fleet. Now, the deep water fleet go out for six weeks. Some of the vessels go out for three months and they go to Antarctica. But um, they mentioned this this happening, and I said to my wife later that night, "Hey, I wonder if um, if I could um, put my name down to go out as crew for on one of these trips." And so I, I messaged the um, I messaged the head of people for the organisation, who I know really well, and sort of that was on the Saturday morning. And three days later, I was um, boarding a, a gangplank uh, down the bottom of the South Island to get on a boat. Um, so I kind of made a really fast gut instinct decision and just sort of went, you know what, I'm going to do this. And part of it came from probably a selfish thing about knowing myself and knowing that I thought I was going to go a bit nuts under lockdown. I thought being in, an, <laughs> being in my office downstairs, being at home with the kids, um, three teenage girls who love their so this is a gift to your family. Was, it was in a way by getting you away from the house for six weeks. Oh, that's so true. And in fact, I don't know, to be honest, you know, a lot of parents will romanticize it, but they did not miss me. And I think um, as uh, as one of the guys said to me on the boat, I can see why your wife wanted you to go because you love talking, mate, don't you? <laughs> okay, so, so, so let's, let's jump into this conversation yeah. here because yeah. so you're teaching these people leadership 
And now all of a sudden you're putting yourself in the environment with them and you're going out to sea for six weeks. So you've made this call, this kind of gut instinct call to go out and Mm -hmm. to, to, to be an employee essentially on, on, on this chart and this this ship going out to sea. Ship. Yeah. Ship. Yep. And and so you've made this decision. Then what Mm -hmm. happens? Then, um, I probably got, I got a bit excited and the adrenaline was flowing and I thought, this is fantastic. But then I kind of thought, oh, how could I get out of this? And I remember <laughs> um, ringing a good friend of mine. as I so, so imagine, so this is at the start of lockdown. It's pretty, there's no one allowed on the streets. The police are out checking vehicles. You needed a permit to travel. Um, and I'm sort of um, flying from the North Island, where I come from, where I live now in Auckland, down to uh, Christchurch in the South Island, our biggest city in the South Island. And then I'm having to drive three hours, do some medical testing, do some drug testing, do some strength testing. And then they had told me that morning that, in fact, the boat wasn't there anymore, but it was another five hours further south. So I had to drive through the night, through the deserted New Zealand sort of backcountry roads, down to a place called Bluff, which is at the bottom of the world, Mm. um, and, and get on this boat nearing midnight in the fog and thinking, if I turned around now and disappeared, no one would even know that I didn't make it and I could make up some story. But I thought, no, no, that's not very very authentic. You need to follow through what you said you're gonna do. Mm. Um and so that was that was what happened. So I got on the boat, they bought the boat back in to do a repair on it on the boiler. And so we ended up staying in Bluff for another day before we set off. But that was kind of the start of it. Wow. And this is a conversation. Really, this is a this is the authenticity piece that you just touched on there is the yes. alignment between who we are at our core and what we say that we are and who we show up and who we be in practice. Um, it's the intersection of theory and practice, our walk and our talk and all of this. And your what you touched on there is, is really powerful is that you actually could have um, made the decision not to go through with it and probably people would have been okay. No one was really expecting you to have to do this. Um, and yet you, no, could, and yet you still no. had to make that decision. And it's part of the, the making the hard calls, right? And no one, um, like it wasn't even the, the learning and development team and the business, they weren't actually asking me to go. I just thought they'd never dreamed that I'd do it. But I do remember one of the, I'll call her a Fisher person because she was female and she was what they call the galley hand. Mm. And she was married to the skipper of one of these vessels who I knew and I trained them a couple of years ago. And I'd always wondered what, you know, what will we, what, how could we make the training more practical for them? Um, and would it work? And she had actually said to me, her name was Joe, and I won't give you her surname, but she said to me, I think you're a bit soft to go to sea. <laughs> and when someone says that to me, I'm a really quite competitive bloke. I, I'm, you know, I, I still play sort of a reasonable standard of uh, football, soccer, and I, and I sort of like a challenge. And so when she said that to me, I kind of thought, yeah, you're possibly right. But then I thought, now's the chance to prove you wrong. And it's almost like that teacher at school that tells you, oh, you'll never amount to nothing, and you want to go back and say to them, hey, this is what I ended up doing with my life. Yeah. And so I wanted to prove prove to that I could do it to myself. And, um, yeah, so that was where it began. Oh, and, the yeah, the, like it, it was a complete – so if you imagine my last – since I, I worked in the Meatworks a little bit before I got my first teaching job, but so I'd done a bit of physical work, but and I'd worked around home with my dad, chopping up firewood and all those kind of things. But I wouldn't say I've done a lot of heavy lifting or don't have a very strong upper body at all, but to go on this boat and start work and literally – 
um, I could have been in a factory in South Auckland somewhere making something, or I could have opted to go out for a four-day inshore trip, which I thought about later. <laughs> um, missed that opportunity, but this was kind of like going to be full on. And the the working in a factory, lifting some kind of heavy trays with packed fish in them, and then stacking them in a rack, it was a real assault on my body and also my mind. Mm. So that was a, a new thing, and. I came into this team in the bottom of the crew. So I came in as the new boy, or there were two or three of us new boys. So being a 47-year-old new boy was a bit ironic, but there was a 19-year-old young man called George who was sort of telling me what to do. And he'd been on three trips, so he had uh, status over me. Mm. And it was quite, quite funny watching all this play out in the factory. But I was just fascinated by what happened in there. Um, how the team led, the, maybe some of the, the language I heard, but you were trying to navigate doing your job and also navigate your foot, uh, your balance as the boat rocked and rolled around. Wow. Um, so that, those were some of the things. I guess one other thing that was really hard was doing ship work. So I went from once, the, the moment I stepped on the boat after they'd given me a few hours extra to sleep, I pretty much went on ship work from um, so eight hours on, eight hours off. And it's, it meant that over two days you did one sort of normal shift from 9 to 5 p.m. on, say, a Monday. And then the next day you'd be working 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. and then wow. 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. the following day. And this just rotated on. So every two days you did three on shifts and, and three off shifts. Um, so you kind of lost track of the days, but you just knew it by the shift pattern you were in. Wow. So that was a major change of of um, for me as well. So talk <laughs> us huge, through. Huge, yeah. You're yep. on the ship, so you've you've you're now out to sea. So like, what? Where did you where did you go? And then what was like the okay. typical work that you were doing? Like like what did it actually cool. look like at life at sea? Yep. So the first is as we sort of headed out of the bottom of the South Island at Bluff, once we'd fixed the boiler, we headed back 450k south of New Zealand to a place called the Orc. Auckland Islands or it's in the Southern Ocean but there's literally one island and there's nothing else till you get to Antarctica so it was pretty remote and there weren't a lot of other vessels around and it was a 61 metre boat but 28 crew, it wasn't actually that big, like it's not like a big cruise ship mm. um, so that was quite quite a, an interesting experience and I don't even really like going recreational fishing, I'm not really into that or I've, I've been <laughs> out a couple of times. What were you doing on this boat? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. And then for the first day and a half, because we went quite fast to get back to the fishing grounds, so mm. all new people tend to get sick. So I spent the first sort of 18 hours feeling really sick as we thundered down south. And they, the crew took great delight in watching the newbies um, be sick in various places around the boat. Um, <laughs> ironically, the only place you could go was a toilet down by the locker rooms which smelt of fish anyway near the factory. Uh, or out by the smoker's deck, and I'm not a smoker, so that make, makes you quite you know, sick anyway. Mm. So there was that sort of experience. And I think one thing that happened there, I'll just allude to, was that the, the crew were all watching you, wondering if you were going to crack or break, or you are going to get there or not, wondering if you'd be able to come back. So it was like a, a thing about, will this person make it, and, and are they going to come back and be in our team mm. or crew? And I had one guy come up to me and say, mate, you must be from Queenstown or Wanaka, which is, you know, a lot of Australians will know Queenstown as sort of like the, the skiing capital. It's a beautiful place in the South Island. And Wanaka is quite a sort of wealthy place near there with beautiful scenery. Um, and I said to him, mate, it's even worse. I'm from Auckland. And most of New Zealand sort of bag Auckland. They don't like Aucklanders. It's the big city. It's, you know, but it was quite funny that he sort of thought, oh, you must be a bit of a, bit of a yuppie, bit of a, 
you know, because you look a bit different, you're not covered in tats, you haven't got any teeth missing, because <laughs> um, there was a few on my vessel like that. Um, but then the work itself was literally um, packing and loading trays and fish off the conveyor belt. We wore um, gumboots, overalls, gloves, because it was quite cold in there. Mm. Um, and then I packed the fish in, load it into a rack, and it was about one ton per rack. And I think a lot of the first shifts, we had a lot of fish on board, a lot of squid actually. So I did about four ton worth of lifting. So the assault on my mm. physical um, energy and body was quite amazing and dropped a lot of fat all over the body. But it was that first kind of 10 days I found really tough. As someone who comes into an experience like this with a leadership brain, what are some of the mm. big lessons that you drew out of that experience? What were some of the big um, learnings that you took away from it? One was definitely that I went um, from gold status in my ear points to no status on the vessel. So here was this <laughs> irony of COVID-19 affecting the whole planet. And, you know, I've been used to flying around the living training courses all over the country. And I in, in the New Zealand, I'd sort of got, you know, you get the free access to a lounge and everything. Yeah. Well, under lockdown, there was no flying at all. And here I was, I'd flown down in a plane with about five passengers in it. And then there was no status for me on the boat. I was at the bottom rung and I needed to work my way up. Or mm. effectively for the first trip, I was going to be on the bottom regardless. Yep. So you kind of got given the toughest job. That was one of the key, le key learnings. A second thing was I was completely outside my comfort zone from sharing a bunk with uh, three other blokes. Two of us would work while two slept and there were all these rules about you couldn't go back to your cabin while others were sleeping. Um, the noises, the assault of the noise of the, the boat and the gears winching up the nets and the um, the way they operated was just a completely new experience for me. And I think the other thing about, <clears throat> as well as being outside my comfort zone, was kind of I had no control over my environment. I was trusting the skippers, the two skippers, to run the boat. I was at the mercy of the waves, and it was just an assault of new experiences, sounds and and noises and and um, what I could see. And when you look out from this boat and just see these massive waves and you're bobbing around and sometimes having to grip the, the sides of where you were just to hold on, um, it was just this, just a, a, a just completely different world than what I've been used to. So going from a classroom environment where you're delivering lots of training or doing a few keynotes um, talks to suddenly being in the environment where I'd trained some of these guys and here I was, working in their crew and treated just like I was just an everyday person, which I was. And mm. there was nothing about, I, I wasn't there to do leadership. I was there to work and, and help provide, basically do essential work for, mm. for the for the world because a lot of the, um, the fish we caught was being shipped overseas. So those are some of the things that came up. Um, you've now had a little bit of time since you've come back from sea to kind of reflect on some yeah. of those big experiences and um, yeah. and to, to kind of draw out some of the learnings from those experiences. What what were some of the big um, reflections that you've had since you've come back, um, I guess, reflecting some of those experiences? That I need to, if I work in a new client, um, I've made it my, my kind of my unique thing to actually – if I'm going to go and work in a factory environment or train these leaders, I actually need to go and see what they do and work in that environment again. Mm. So I um, started work with a great business the other week called Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, who are actually involved in making lots of ventilation equipment and masks and that sort of thing for children and adults. So their business has really gone through the roof over lockdown. And so, but I went and did a four-hour stint in their factory just so I could learn about 
what the leaders do in there before I trained the leaders. So I went in last Monday, did that, and then on the Thursday, started my first delivery course for the supervisors. And it was just really handy to go and actually live what they do um, and um, be in their environment before trying to teach them about leadership skills. Because if I can't relate the leadership skills to what they're doing, then there's no point. Can we take these tools and make them practical, make them easy to use for you? Um, so it's taking that theory, yeah, taking that theory, Shane, of, um, you know, this is great and here's a great idea or a great concept, but how do we convert that to what we do day to day in my team with my with my direct reports or the people that report to me? Uh, I think that that there is the key lesson in, in the story. What I'm hearing in the mm. conversation about going to see is that over time, as we we kind of explore leadership or we find ourselves in position of leadership, you, you describe it if we are gold class. Um, if we talk about ourselves in yes, leadership as being yeah. gold class in leadership, um, which might just mean that we've got a big experience or a, you know, a long track record in it, it can be really easy yes. to forget what it's like to be no class or no status, right? Gold status mm. to no status. Mm. And yeah. we, we can almost disconnect our leadership concepts with the reality of what it looks like at the ground level. And I think what you're touching on here is such an important um, idea is that anything that we do at the top has to connect with what's going on at the bottom, right? Oh, so true. And, you know, I, I um, after the first 10 days on that vessel of sort of feeling a bit sorry for myself, struggling to control my environment, um, I, I worked out what I could control and what I couldn't. So I would put things in place to do that. But I then like things like getting my laundry done, getting up earlier and, and making sure I ate well um, once I got my sea legs. But then I, I started spending a lot of time talking to the crew. So I tried to turn it from, hey, stop feeling sorry for yourself and how you're feeling and the pain in your hands and let's see if I can feed into these people. Out of, out of the 28 on board, there were 26 men, two women, they were amazing people that a lot of them had had tough starts in life. You know, they might have lost a, a parent early on to a car accident or to a uh, drugs and alcohol or some kind of trauma that they'd gone through. And they had tough starts. And most, if not at least two-thirds, had done time either in New Zealand or Australia. Mm-hmm. Some of them had been deported from Australia. And they were, but they were guys who had a lot of ability. And I was, I spent my time then going, you know, let's not make this about me. Let's make it about them. So I would, I would try to um, help them. I would try to just give them positive feedback about what I saw. There was a guy called Glenn who was, had been on the vessel a lot, done lots of different jobs, but he was fantastic at training people and how to keep safe, how to use the machinery properly and how to show you the, the best way to pack or the best way to do the job. So he was amazing. There was another character called Terry, a lot of fun. He looked after me when I was being sick at the start of the trip. And he would he would he would teach me about how to do his job. And he was so full of life, so full of vigor. And he he helped me um he helped me learn the, the right way to do things and showed me the ropes. So literally showed me the ropes. So that was really really cool. So it was yeah, it was it was how could I how could I learn also not not come in as some kind of leadership expert, but how could I take some of the stuff that they were teaching me and how could I give back to them? Mm-hmm. And I hoped I did that. A, a couple of them found out what I did towards the end of the trip. I didn't sort of go in at the start saying what I did. They actually thought I was an undercover cover boss because they asked so many questions. Um, <laughs> but I, it was a bit like one of those TV shows, you know, where the CEO yeah. goes undercover. Well, here, here's this guy who, who looks a bit out of sorts with the normal person we get on the vessel. 
And here he is sort of asking a lot of questions about the factory. And I remember one guy saying to me, Mark, just focus on what you're doing. Don't worry about what the rest of the crew are doing. Because <laughs> I was looking at the process in the factory and seeing how we could improve it or how we could make it a bit safer or how we could get a better result. I like what you're touching yeah. on here because, again, we, we mm. try to draw out the big leadership experiences and all of this. And a couple of the ones that you touched on there was that leadership really at its essence is about others. And it's about the way that we can yeah. better serve the people that follow us. Because leadership without followers is actually not leadership, right? right? You're just kind of walking alone. So and so if our leadership yep. is about how do we best serve other people, you can't best serve other people until you first understand those people. And I think what you're touching on here is, is for any leader, regardless of context, for us to be able to take theory and put it into practice, we need to actually understand what it looks like at the ground level. Sure. Absolutely. And so kind of, I don't think there was any better way of immersing myself on the ground level. I, I possibly could have taken a more, um, I could have gone and worked in the, the factory with a healthcare company and helped make ventilators. And, you know, that would have been 15 minutes from home. Mm. I would have been an essential worker, but I would have had my home comforts. But I think this really got me outside of my comfort zone and, and actually really shook me up. Um, it also just, and the interesting thing with that is I took my laptop and my plan was to do some LinkedIn sort of lives <laughs> or some some broadcast from sea, but the reality of most of the trip, we only had intermittent satellite um, Wi-Fi, so we got a little bit of coverage, and I could talk to my wife on WhatsApp, but effectively, there was no coverage, and I even forgot my computer login. One night, I spent 20 minutes, <laughs> probably at 4 a.m., trying to log into my laptop, and actually, I've completely forgotten. So, in a way, it was like a, a complete change, which mm. was also refreshing, and that saying about a change as good as a holiday, it certainly was. And I noticed when I came back at the end of lockdown, New Zealand had just gone from complete lockdown to what we deemed level three. And a lot of the people who I had worked with in the past, consultants and people running their own businesses and practices were were sort of a little bit flat and in a way a little bit down and, mm. and, and depressed. And I sort of was thinking, oh, I love this. I'm really come back fired up because my experience had been completely different than what they had under lockdown. Um the rest of the country had been confined to their homes and doing a little bit of exercise, but I was out working with a mask on for the first two weeks because we had to, to do mm. the 14 days isolation part. But we were like in our own little unique bubble and it was um, definitely a bubble at sea. I, I, I <laughs> love this conversation because I just think there's so much from an experience like that, which is quite a unique experience. Not a lot of people would have it. Yeah. Um, there's so much that you can draw out of this leadership of, of really leadership is seen when you can connect what you do at a high level to what people do at the ground level and really leadership yeah. is about what it looks like to not show up and ask you know um or, or say this is what i want but actually to be able to ask what do we need um and actually to connect with those yeah. people now a lot of people listening mm -hmm. may never have that opportunity to go out to sea for six weeks and to to really find that out at that ground level but um there are some practical things people can do to try and 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 take um, this, the lessons from this and apply within their own context. What do you think are some of the practical lessons people could take away from an experience like this? What are some of the things you suggest people do? Okay, particularly with the people that work, they work, um, sorry, they manage or the, their manager, if they haven't got a team, it's just make sure that when you're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation to be present, to listen first and not tell. I think we're starting to see now with the younger generations coming through, they're just not going to respond to people who just tell them what to do. Yeah. They want to be coached, so we've got to ask questions and listen. So I think um, coach first yeah. um, and try to help people where they're at. Listen and, and listen to their ideas. And 
if, if the ideas from the team are taken forward and applied in what the business does, it has a massive impact in terms of engagement. Um, the other part with that is, is if you need to deal with something, maybe be be direct about it. If you need to confront an issue, deal with it and don't sort of um, put it off. Sometimes I think in New Zealand we sort of don't have the tougher conversations. We sort of avoid them, mm-hmm. but we're learning from the other cultures that have come to live here that it's really, really important that we're able to deal with the tough stuff and have the tough conversations. So, um, yeah, it's kind of around have that have that um, mindset about developing yourself, but also think about how you can develop others. Even though we've had this, you know, this horrible pandemic around the world, there are going to be some great stories that come out of it of resilience, of how people have um, prospered, how people have helped others. And I guess we're really seeing too people lean and support others more. Um, it's made us, I reckon, more human in a way, Shane. Like I think the corporate culture of go to work and and you put on this facade of a corporate like a corporate mask, actually, that's been broken down by the fact that people have had to use all these online technologies at mm-hmm. home. So, yeah, that's kind of something. I, th- I think we're always learning, right, and we're always growing. So it's something I challenge myself to do all the time so that I can be credible in the training rooms, so that I can kind of say, I've done this, I've gone and w- walked a little bit in your shoes. It might not be a fishing vessel, but I've walked a little bit in your shoes and I've listened to what you need and I've, I've heard you and we've made these changes. Mm, I love yeah. it. And that that in itself is is the conversation around authentic leadership, isn't it? It's not coming in and presuming that we know, but it's actually taking time to stop, listen, ask, understand and connect with empathy. And then actually being able to put ourselves in situations where it becomes boots on the ground. I think at, at the end of the day, a lot of the leadership conversations we're having with people um, in, in the last you know six to 12 months, we're having conversations where we want to know that you aren't just speaking from the front but you're leading on the ground and we want to know that you're that you understand and that you see and recognize where we are and i think it's a really important leadership conversation to be having and so big thank you to you for for jumping on the podcast and, and actually unpacking some of those conversations how how can people connect with you what's the best way for someone to reach out and connect with you oh um great um so two ways either my website is mark com. so grainy is g-r-e-a-n-e-y um and the reason why I've got the hyphen in the middle is because there's a famous author called Mark Graney who writes a whole lot of military-style um, fictional stories, and he's he's quite prolific. He's an American <laughs> dude. He was in the SAS. So I've got this this competition. So I have one book here. It's about 18. Um, but they can do it, go to mark-graney.com, or they can connect with me on LinkedIn, and they could look it up under... Um, leadership skills for practical people as well. So Yeah, I love yeah, that. I always encourage everyone ways. to reach out and connect with people on the podcast, especially on LinkedIn, because it's obviously a great way to stay up the most up to date with what you're doing. And definitely some of the True. work you do in terms of leadership skills um, for, pra- you know, um, leadership in practice is practical, the, is the people. practical yeah. people. And I think that's a really important conversation to be having, especially as we give people the resources and skills they need to be able to lead out of a global pandemic, as well as the skills yeah. they need to be able to lead in it and so i think it's really important but uh huge thank you thanks for coming on the podcast mark oh thank you shane for having me and lovely to have a chat with you and it's it's really actually quite cool just um hearing myself talk about it and realize that there were a lot more even learnings that i'm uncovering as, as i talk more um so thank you so much for that it's a really cool opportunity that's it for another week of phone calls with clever people thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.